Before we get started, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all uh, focus, use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we can come to you in prayer, and we know that when life is seems out of control or chaotic, whether it is in the micro level of our own uh, day-to-day existence or the macro level, dealing with the affairs of the world and watching what goes on in various circumstances and situations internationally, where there's tremendous uncertainty economically, tremendous uncertainty in relation to jobs and in relation to the direction of our nation, We know that you are in control, even when things seem rather chaotic around us. And we can trust you, we can relax and not fear, not give in to uh, emotions of panic and and, uh, being afraid of of what might happen because we know you're in control and that you will guide and direct our lives day by day, moment by moment. Father, we're thankful for our spiritual life that we're studying about in Romans and getting tremendous insights into uh, the way things are different in this dispensation, in this church age, and how tremendous it is that we have the resources given to us by you through the Holy Spirit and his uh, empowerment in our life. And we pray tonight as we study your word that you would help us to see these things and understand these things and be challenged. In Christ's name, amen. We are in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. This is one of the five great, greatest chapters in all of the New Testament. This is the chapter that really tells us, really focuses out in a a logical way, the foundation for the spiritual life. Romans 8 has to be understood in connection with Galatians chapter 5. These are, I think, the two greatest chapters in the Scripture on the spiritual life, and, of course, they connect with Ephesians 5 and with uh, uh, with John chapter uh, um, 15, the abiding chapter. But, But this chapter lays it out in the most remarkable logical way as Paul has taken us from Romans 6, 1, dealing with the, the, our focus on what happens at, at the moment of our salvation in terms of our identification with Christ at the death, burial, uh, as we're identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. And it's, it's interesting, this time around, some of you may have listened to series I did uh, 12 or 13 years ago when I was uh, first up at Preston City Bible Church, I went through Romans 6, 7, and 8, and I, don't, I think it was 11 or 12 lessons just to h- highlight, overview, and give sort of a more, little bit more elementary view of, um, of the spiritual life in, in, in Romans. And now we've gone through it in a more in-depth fashion. But one of the things we see here in Romans 8, and, and one of the things you'll see tonight, is that I've sort of refined a few things along the way as I continue to study, and this is typical for any pastor. Sometimes congregations idolize their pastors a little too much, and I've seen this especially with younger pastors. They don't have patience with the learning process that pastors go through. 
The first 10 years of most pastors' ministries should probably not be recorded for posterity (laughs) because they're learning. You come out of seminary, no matter how much background you have, no matter how much training you have, you're still cognitively trying to put all the pieces together. And even though you may have your, 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 you know, your, the basic structure right, your basic theology orientation, I, things like that together, you're still really wrestling with a, a mass of, uh, of detail that just seems, um, j- just seems like you're, you're trying to nail jello to the wall at times because there's so much there that, that you're trying to control and you're still trying to just learn the scripture. We've lost the kind of, uh, uh training that characterized uh, uh, the, the, the Jewish community for thousands of years where everyone uh, with, was expected to learn, and especially if you were a man, you were expected to learn and to memorize the Scripture. By the time you were 13 years old, you would have the Torah memorized, you would have most of the rest of the Old Testament memorized, and this was this was expected. We've lowered our expectations so much that by the time uh, we get to the 20, late 20th, early 20th century, 50 to 75% of the men who go to seminary to learn to be pastors have just really started studying the Bible at any level within two years of their going to seminary. Whereas historically, we've had a culture that has, uh, by the time... Men like, for example, Jonathan Edwards during the colonial period. I'm talking about the 1720s, 1730s, uh, 1740s. By the time Jonathan Edwards finished uh, what we would call high school today before he went to, uh, went to Yale, he, had, he probably had a greater knowledge of Latin, Greek, and Hebrew when he started university than most THM, Master of Theology students have when they graduate from Dallas Seminary. Think about that. And so it, if you don't have that much background and training, it takes a while to start putting things together. And there are so many different things that come along today that we hear from, from this pastor, that pastor, this radio personality, this television personality, that are, and these, many of these pastors may be great communicators and very popular in the way they're able to communicate ideas, but many of them are not theologians and they don't spend, uh, but maybe a tenth of the time that they should really studying through the scripture. In fact, what I've discovered sadly in our generation is the more time a man spends in his study really learning the word of God so that he can teach and feed his sheep, the fewer sheep he's going to have simply because people today don't value the education, the training of a pastor. And I see this among pastors. We've lowered the level of expectation so much that in many circles and many congregations, you have churches that almost pride themselves in the fact that their pastoral staff has no formal education. Uh, some of you are familiar with the church out on the uh, West Coast in California that has made a name for itself because it emphasizes the idea of the purpose-driven church. That church back in the ninth, that that pastor actually really got his start in the late 70s 
with that, and it didn't become known nationally for many people until the 90s. But there was another church in Chicago by the name of Willow Creek that I first became aware of in the, I think, in the early 80s. And it was another one of those huge mega churches that, that was started, and by, by the late 80s had a pastoral staff of over 300. You imagine most churches don't even have 300 people in the church, even if they count all the people who ever showed up at the church. And, and here was a church that had 300 pastors on staff, and there was a, a man by the name, I think it was either Pritchard or Pritchard, who was getting his Ph.D. in sociology at Northwestern University and decided this a study of this particular church would be a, a tremendous uh, Ph.D. project. And so he went to the church staff, got permission to do uh, uh, study, write, interview, spent a year at the church, one of his observations on the church was of those 300 pastors, there wasn't one who owned a systematic theology. Not one. There wasn't one that had any formal training in Bible. No seminary, no Bible college, no, and they prided themselves on it. This, at the time, that church was the largest church in the United States. Now it's been superseded by... Uh, what's his name down the street here at the summit? So that's, but that tells you something about the value of, of education in this country. The larger the church, the less formal education, the less training. And, and they, they said there, there was even a quote in that dissertation from one of the pastors saying, "Well, we really we're afraid that if somebody went to seminary that that would that would somehow uh, stifle our creativity." And our, and our growth. My point in all of this is that as I've gone through growth in studying Romans 6 through 8, this was something that, um, that I really focused, got my attention focused on when I was a student at Dallas Seminary. My very, very first semester, you took a um, course on the spiritual life. And I had a professor who had pastored a church in Houston previously and was a good Greek scholar. Now, what's interesting is he's probably moved much closer to where uh, to, to a Chaferian position today than he was then. But at that point, he wasn't. He was still trying to get over his second Ph.D. In, in, at the University of Basel in Switzerland. But he was a, a, a good thinker, and I always uh, I, I always enjoyed him, and I took as many courses as I could from him because he challenged my thinking. You know, that's why you should take some professors. It's not because that you are, want to learn what they want to teach you, but because they're going to teach you how to think. And you may not agree with a single thing they ever tell you, but they're the ones who are going to uh, inspire you to learn how to think, defend yourself, present your views. They're the ones who are going to cause thoughts to generate in your, in your head. I read a lot of books for that reason, and I tell other people, I say, oh, that was a great commentary. I really enjoyed it. I don't really remember what I read in the commentary, what the guy said, but it was great because of the thoughts that it inspired me to think. And they, I might not have agreed with anything he said. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, but anyway, Ed, Ed was uh, one of my uh, professors, and we went through Romans 6, 7, and 8, and he did not take a view like unto Lewis Berry Chafer, which is the view that I hold today, view that many of you hold, and that we consi I consistently teach. And 
it helped me to understand what I believe better than than I would. And it took me a lot of years to get to that point because of that. And one of the one of the products of that whole experience I had was that conference we had two years ago on the spiritual life, uh, the, the Chafer conference. That was one of the greatest conferences, and the the product of that from those men that came was was a result of that. And so it's a it's a growth process. And I say that because as we come to our first first uh, verse here, Romans eight one. Paul begins with a conclusion. This conclusion comes out of what he has said in Romans chapter uh, Romans chapter 7. Now, let's go back and look at Romans chapter 7 just a little bit. Romans 7 started off, and, and Paul is addressing the question of the law. What is the relation of the believer to the law? And as I've pointed out several times in the past, uh, past few weeks and in the past overall, is the role of the law in the life of the believer in this age has been terribly misunderstood. There are many people who think that the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law are are outside of the sacrifices. They're just as mandatory today as as they ever were. My first church was down at, at, in Lamarck, Texas. Some of you know where Lamarck is. If, if you go past Lamarck, you fall into Galveston Bay. And I was at a church that had been founded in 1895 as a union church. A union church was sort of an uh, older term, a more antiquated term for a community church. If you went into a new new uh, settlement, new area, uh, new community, and you didn't have enough Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Catholic, uh, not Catholics, but enough Episcopalians or whatever Protestants to have your own denomination, then you would unify in a church. Now, they certainly had some doctrinal differences. Some believed in uh, pedo-baptism or infant baptism. Some would believe in believer's baptism, some in sprinkling, some in immersion. And so part of the deal was that whoever the pastor was, he would make sure that if somebody held a view that was different from his on baptism, he would get another pastor in who would do whatever kind of baptism they wanted, that kind of a thing. It wasn't ecumenical in the modern sense uh, because they weren't. nobody's asked to compromise doctrine, but they didn't have enough people to have more than one church, so they just had, had a, a union. So this church was called Paul's Union Church, and it wasn't called for the Apostle Paul, but during the Depression, the church ran out of money halfway through their building program and building their church, and so the man down the street who was a member of the church, whose name was Paul, gave the money for them to finish the church, so they named it after him. I'm glad his name wasn't Herman. Otherwise, it would have been Herman's Union Church or Fred's Union Church. But one of the first things as a young pastor that I said about two or three months into my pastorate was that the Ten Commandments is not for us. I thought I was going to have a revolt that morning. And it took me a long time to settle, settle people down. And that was because they just hadn't been taught, taught well, even though they were allegedly dispensational. And as a dispensational church, they would understand that there were different requirements in different ages. And when Jesus came, as, Rome, as Paul says in Romans 10, he, that was the end of the law. So the big question that the apostles wrestle with, as we've seen in, in, in Acts, and the question that comes up in Romans and a couple of other times in the New Testament is, what's the role of the law? 
And so that's the question Paul answers there, and he ends this in verse 6 in the opening introduction. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died, and that is being separated from the authority of of um, of the sin nature, the, the, the tyranny of the, of the sin nature, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And as I pointed out there, the contrast here is between the dynamic of the new dispensation, the new age that started on the day of Pentecost, where God the Holy Spirit indwells every single believer and fills every believer, which is a term related to the growth-producing ministry, the uh, sanctifying-producing ministry of God the Holy Spirit, in the life of a believer that is walking by the Spirit or walking in fellowship. All of that is uh, summarizes where Paul's headed in Romans 8. So he introduces this terminology of the Spirit and the, and the letter, letter related to the law, that the law could only do so much. It pointed out, laid out the path, but it didn't give anybody the ability to walk the path. The, the purpose of the law wasn't to, to show people that if you obey the law, you can get to heaven, but that you can't ever obey the law, so on your own you can't get to heaven. It was to point out inability, not to point out ability. And then Paul introduces this next question in verse 7, what shall we say, say then is the law of sin? So at this point he, he stops his forward momentum at verse 6, and he goes down an, an important and necessary uh, side trail. He comes back to the main line of thought in Romans 8.1. Romans 8.1, he says, There's there, therefore now condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you are, uh, if you have something other than a King James Version or a, a New King James Version, what happened? Okay, just pause a minute, because I actually, no, that's not right. I've lost something that I, I mean, I worked on the, there we go. Is that it? Maybe that'll be it. There we go. Okay, get the right slideshow up here, and we're going to do fine. Okay. So when he asked this question, in the first six verses, then he goes off into this rabbit trail and the law of sin. The answer is, no, it's holy, and it reveals sin. And then he goes to, into the whole discussion on the fact that, that without relying on the Holy Spirit, just trying to fulfill the law, he does what he doesn't do, and he doesn't do what he uh, want, really would like to do, which is in obeying God. And the conclusion is, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Body of death meaning that in our physical existence we are still under, we're still mortal, and we still have a sin nature, and we're still going to sin. Then he has a statement of praise in verse 25 where it says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with my mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin, contrasting those. That sets things up for Romans 8.1. We'll come back to those in just a minute. I'm just trying to give us an overview here. In Romans 8.1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have a New International Version, New American Standard Bible, uh, New English Translation, 
if you have the, what is this one, the um, ESV, the English Standard Version, anything other than King James and New King James, your verse ends with a period after Christ Jesus. But if you have a King James and New King James, it has an additional and significant uh, clause after it defining those who are in Christ Jesus as those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, there's a, this is one of the most, I think one of the most significant, probably the top ten most significant textual problems that we run into. Usually I don't ever address them or I just make a couple of comments, but this one is one that is really important because if you, you take out a couple of different translations, New King James versus New American Standard, you're missing half a verse. Should that verse be there? Having grown up with the King James Version, and when I went to seminary, about that time, mid-70s was when the New American Standard became very popular. I remember sitting down and looking at that and thinking, wow, that's, how, and I didn't know Greek. It was just, how come my verse has stuff that that translation doesn't, and what are all of the issues? And if you look down to verse 4, just look down to verse 4, you see where Paul says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. You see the similarity? And what happened in the 19th century with the discovery of a number of manuscripts that uh, came out of North Africa, and some of you have heard these stories before, stories related to uh, the discovery of uh, Codex Vaticanus that had been locked away in the Vatican for centuries, and then... Uh, uh, it was gradually uh, discovered um, and brought out into the open by uh, a couple of different scholars who who put pressure on the Vatican. Then you had Count uh, von Tischendorf who went down and discovered Codex Sinaiticus uh, in the uh, St. Catherine's Monastery in uh, in Egypt, where he looked at he was had, there was some wadded up papyrus there that was being used as kindling for the fire in the room. And he noticed as it flared up, he noticed Greek lettering on it. And being an expert in Greek, he read it and realized he was looking at a New Testament manuscript that was very old. And there were four of these manuscripts that were discovered that all date back to around the 4th to 5th century A.D., well, that's pretty close to the time of the writing of the New Testament. And so the thinking that permeated uh, uh, scholars at that time was that it's older than anything else we have, so it must be better. Now, that's really a fallacy because if I have a really good, a perfect copy of a, of a second-century manuscript of the New Testament... But that copy is made in the 8th century or the 9th century. And it's made because the 2nd century document is fading and it's hard to read and it needs to be faithfully copied so that it's preserved. And then after it's copied, it's, that 2nd century manuscript is destroyed. The 8th century manuscript may not be as old as Codex Sinaiticus, but it's better. And one of the reasons these... these um, uh, manuscripts in, in Egypt were preserved is because they were in Egypt, 
where the climate is dry and it's in the desert, and so they're preserved. In other places in the world where the climate is uh, humid and damp and uh, there are other problems, the manuscripts would, would rot and be destroyed and they wouldn't be preserved. So there were four of these that were discovered, and the thinking among the that, that began to dominate the study of the, of the Scripture was that if any two of these four agreed, that had to be the Word of God. That was it. And um, now they, they would say that was oversimplifying, but it's basically the truth, and it's certainly true in this particular text. If, if two, it didn't matter how many other manuscripts read differently. If two of these four agreed, that's what the critical text went with. And the critical text is a reference to a, 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 a text that in the bottom margin of the text, they put all the different variants down there so scholars can read it. And uh, this this is the text that's behind uh, the New American Standard, NIV, these. It's now gone to its, it's also called the Nestle Aland text. It's just gone to the 28th edition. And... Um, uh, and it's very, very helpful in many, many ways, but that's the theory behind it. And so there's, but there are differences. Now there's the, the theory that's behind the King James Version and the New King James ver- Version that you have is what's called the text receptus, Latin for the received text. Now the way that came into being was that in the period of the uh, late uh, 1400s, early 1500s, the period that just precedes what is known in southern Europe as the Renaissance. In northern Europe, it's known as the Reformation. There is a flood of ancient manuscripts, original language manuscripts, for all manner of different writings, classical Greek, classical Roman period, as well as the, the, the New Testament. What has happened is that that those peace-loving Muslims have been once again conquering territory and torturing and murdering and raping and pillaging all the Christians. And so the the monks have gathered up all of their scrolls and uh, gotten on their wagons and their donkeys and whatever else and headed to Europe to get away from the encroaching uh, barbarian uh, Islamic hordes. And and so all these manuscripts have suddenly been discovered, and they're coming into Europe. Well, what happened was in southern Europe, what what fueled the Renaissance was that they went back to original documents in in terms of ancient classical Greek and Ro- Roman documents. In the northern areas, in Germany and Switzerland and France, they went back to the they, they didn't go back as far. They got back to the original documents of the Bible and camped out. And that gave birth to the Reformation. Now, there was a Roman Catholic scholar by the name of Erasmus, uh, Erasmus of Rotterdam, who was a scholar and, a, and a, he's known as a humanist. And he, later he became a theological opponent of Martin Luther, who is the one who started the Protestant Reformation. And he put together, found eight ancient Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. And he put them together and published the first critical text of the New Testament, where it had notes in the margins of where there were different readings between these different manuscripts. Now, all eight of those manuscripts reflected what uh, was known, later became known as the Byzantine text, because the 
Byzantine empires, the Eastern Roman Empire, that's the area around Turkey, Greece, and this area, which was where scholarship kind of dominated at that time. And so that later became known as a Byzantine text. But nothing, none of these documents were any older than the ninth century, and they weren't, based on what we have now, they weren't the best of manuscripts. So there were some real problems. In fact, there were a couple of places where verses were left out, and so Erasmus, just, especially one very famous one in John, he just made it up. <laughs> Truly. No matter what view you take on textual criticism, everybody pretty much agrees he made it up, unless you're a King James-only person. King James-only are the people that, that if it was good enough for, if the King James Version was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it's good enough for us. <laughs> we laugh. They really believe that. And, and they will, and their missionaries will go to places like Poland and, and Africa and India and say, you have to learn English. You have to learn. Uh, you have to learn King James English so that you can read the inspired text of the King James version. That's what they believe. So they they don't think there's any difference. Well, over the next couple of decades, Erasmus found three or four more ancient manuscripts, added those to the original eight, and that became known as the received text. It's part of what we now call the Byzantine family. But the Byzantine family has much better and older manuscripts than what became the TR, and they differ. It's also known as the majority text. Now, if you want to dig into this, last year at the Chafer Conference, uh, Ron Minton was here. He's a missionary in Ukraine like Jim Myers is. Uh, He's in the Kharkov area, and he is truly an expert on the history of the Bible and the biblical text and he gave a, uh, basically a course on textual criticism, gave the short version for the conference, about three lectures, and then there are some additional lectures. All those are on the Dean Bible website. But that's, that's the sort of the background on this. That's where the Textus Receptus came from. As many, many more manuscripts in that ter- area of modern Turkey, Greece, that area be- became discovered in the 18th and 19th and 20th century, that it became known as that that family of manuscripts became known as either the Byzantine group or the majority text, um, and and why they got that's a totally different different issue, but the majority text didn't agree with the TR all the time. There's over 1,800 differences between the majority text and the TR. I tend to be a majority text advocate. I think that is superior. You actually have Greek. Large Greek manuscripts, there are very few that have the entire New Testament, but you have large Greek codexes uh, or, or minuscules that have, that, that read almost exclusively like the majority text. But if you look at the critical text, there's no Greek manuscript that read, that has the readings that if I pick up my Greek, my critical Greek text, there's not a single Greek manuscript that reads like that. And that's part of the difference bet- between these. And one of the places where this really does make a difference is here in Romans 8.1. Because this phrase that I have in brackets is left out of the, of the critical text, but it is in the, not only in the TR, it's in the majority text. And I put a note down at the bottom that the critical text is based on this reading in Codex Sinaiticus, which is mid-1400s. That's the, that's the codex that, that Tischendorf found on, uh, at, uh, St. Catherine's on Mount Sinai. 
and Vaticanus, which was the uh, manuscript that was found uh, in, the, in the Vatican. The majority text is reading, which, is, which includes the phrase, who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit, is found in Codex Alexandrinus, Alexandria, Egypt. It's, it's also found that same area in Egypt. It's early 5th century. Only 60, 70 years separates the, the, this manuscript from the, from the top two. But the Codex Sinaiticus is found in four different readings where there are four different scribes that have corrected it. So the uncorrected version leaves it out. The scribe known as number two, assigned the number two has it in it, okay? Are you thoroughly confused at this point? So you, have, you, you only have two of all the ancient manuscripts... You, you have the two primary ones that leave it out are uh, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. A corrected version of Vaticanus, corrected at that time by another scribe, includes the phrase, plus there's, it's in the majority of documents and a number of others. Now, there's a few other codexes from a little later on in history that, uh, that leave it out, but it's primarily based on the fact that it's not included in Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. And on the strength of its omission in those two codexes, it's omitted from the critical text. That, that's the trump card that they go to. Remember what I said? If any two of those four early Egyptian uh, manuscripts agree on something, that, that's golden for them. That's end of the discussion. And that really, I mean, I've, I've simplified it a lot for y'all, but that's, that's basically it. Now, this is important, crucially important, because almost everything in Romans 8, aside from this textual difference, agrees consistently with Romans, I mean, with Galatians chapter 5 and this conflict between uh, the believer who's either walking according to the flesh living his life according to the flesh of the sin nature and living his life according to the uh, according to the holy spirit that it's one or the other if you if you take this phrase out of this verse it's not that it changes the whole meaning of the uh, of of the context of chapter 8 but it it it's it gets fuzzy for a lot of people okay it's really clear if, you, if this is added in verse 1, and it's not just because the scribe saw it down in verse 4 and made a mistake and wrote it twice, which is what uh, the critical text guys will say in terms of explaining it. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If it ends there, it looks as if he's, since Paul has been talking about justification in Romans, and often justification, in, in, especially in an English translation, is seen as, as, as the opposite of condemnation. And second, because you have the phrase here, those who are in Christ, and being in Christ is uh, related to our position in Christ, the instant that we trust him as Savior, it looks, therefore, if you leave out the second half of the verse, that what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 1 is that there, if, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're in Christ, and therefore there's no condemnation, what kind of condemnation would that be? Temporal or eternal? 
Hmm? Eternal. That's what it looks like. Except that doesn't fly. Now, why doesn't it fly? Now, I didn't. When I taught the short series several years ago, I took the view that this is, was positional, and I'm correcting myself due to additional study. The context of Romans 6, 7, and 8 is not talking about how to get justified anymore. It's not talking about how to be righteous anymore. It's talking about what happens when righteous people, those who are justified, are living according to the flesh. And that's all of Romans 7. Paul says, wretched man that I am. Because he's a believer who's living according to the flesh, and he just can't have any 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 uh, victory over the the sin nature. But it's not just related to the immediate context; it's related to the word that's used here for condemnation, and that's this word in the Greek. It's katakrima. Katakrima is a noun that is only used three times in the New Testament. And guess where it's used all three times? In Romans. Romans 5, 16, and 18, and Romans 8, 1. Now, in Romans 5, 16, and 18, and we'll go there in just a minute, but if you remember, that's where we started to see Paul make his transition from talking about justification and how to be justified to the implications of how does a justified person live in relation to the sin nature. And he goes into the topic then of how the saved person or the justified person now lives. That's the topic of Romans 6, 7, and 8. So in Romans 3, 4, and the beginning of 5, Paul's been talking about how to be justified. Starting in 5, and especially in 6, 7, and 8, 5 starts the transition, Paul begins to talk about how does a justified person live. So if condemnation here is talking about eternal condemnation, then Paul's reversed himself, and he's gone back to talk about initial justification rather than how a justified person lives. Now, that could fit. And there are definitely scholars who take that view and uh, a number of folks who take that view. But it's important to explain the difference in this word katakrima and why this particular word is used. In the uh, Lonidas Semantic uh, Dictionary, uh, the, the, these uh, scholars point out that the word katakrima means to judge someone as definitely guilty and thus subject to punishment. See, condemnation has the idea mostly of declaration of guilt. But the word katakrima goes beyond guilt to punishment, the results of guilt. And that's really important to understand here because when, when we use the phrase um, that, that they're, they're condemned, we're thinking the, that they're guilty and we're thinking eternal. But if the word primarily means just the idea of punishment, it could relate to A, eternal punishment, B, temporal divine discipline, or it can wrap the whole ball of wax up in terms of talking about the present consequences of, of living according to the sin nature, which it fits the context here. And I'll get into, I'll show you this in a minute. I think it's very important to understand this. 
Bauer, Art, and Gingrich, which is the foremost Greek lexicon, says that the, this word katakrima doesn't merely mean condemnation, uh, but it focuses on the punishment that follows the uh, pronouncement of legal guilt. Condemnation in English and in passages that, like John 3.18, focuses on guilt. Katakrima, but that word, back up, that word normally translated condemnation is just krima in the Greek. Katakrima takes a preposition kata, which usually means, we'll see it a lot in this passage, which means according to a standard. Katakrima, when it's added as a prefix to a, another word, brings in this idea of, of according to something. Now, I don't want to be guilty of a, what's called a, a, a um, uh, basically a semantic or etymological fallacy here. I'm not saying that the meaning of this word is just de- determined by the uh, compound of its, of its parts, but it helps us understand this. Katakrima mean, would mean what? According to judgment. What's punishment? Punishment is what's according to the judgment. So, so that's really what the word katakrima means. It goes beyond the meaning of krima, which indicates the pronouncing, pronouncement of guilt. It goes beyond it to focus on the punishment or the consequences that come to the one who is, who is guilty. Now, a number of years ago, we had uh, uh, Ron Merriman was here, uh, speaking, and he made some really good observations related to these words and how they're used in uh, in Romans. And so uh, here's a chart based on uh, what he put up at the uh, screen at that, that particular time, and I just want to show you how a little bit of observation here really helps expose some of the things that are going on in Paul's uh, Paul's thinking. Uh, Ron's a great scholar. Now he's living in, in uh, Tullahoma, Tennessee, is a vital part of uh, Clay Ward's church there. And that's, that's you know, I just want to make a comment there. I'm really proud of Ron for what he did. Ron had been a president of Western Bible College. He'd been pastor of a church in Denver. I uh, had good min- ministries. And then as he got older, he retired. And I think how we retire as, as pastors and as folks in the church are really important. You know, when you get to the point when you can retire, you ought to think about going into some kind of full-time ministry. You're going to have a retirement income already. Go be a missionary. Do something. Don't just quit. Don't give up and say, I'm going to stay home with the grandchildren and just sit out on the rocker. No. Go be a missionary somewhere. Go. What Ron did was initially he and his wife retired to the Phoenix area, and he was writing and doing other things. But then he said, I, I really don't have a min- any kind of ministry in a local church here. So he, he sort of looked around. He didn't want to go into an, uh, an urban environment. So they had looked at some of the younger pastors that were coming up and said, these guys need to be mentored by older, mature pastors. So he picked Clay Ward in Tullahoma, Tennessee, and he and his wife sold their house in Arizona and moved to Tullahoma so he could be an older mentor a voice of stability in a young church with a young pastor, and that's just fabulous. You know, it, it, it's it, it's it's passing on, it's mentoring, it's all these great great things. So that's what Ron's doing and uh, doing a great job. I just think that's a great example. I would what I wish I could do, but you see, you have too many pastors who are too happy to stay where they are geographically because that's where their grandkids are. 
Now, I don't have kids or grandkids, so I'm not going to go down a road there on, you know, saying, okay, well, they're wrong. But wouldn't it be great if we could get all these guys who are retired who have independent income to move to one location and, and, and they wouldn't be dependent on a, on a seminary for income because they already have their income from their retirement, and they could, they could be the faculty of a seminary. But, I mean, that's really a dream. That's idealism because mo, mo, a lot of pastors, when they get into their 70s, are already dealing with some health problems. They're near family. They don't want to move across the country someplace. But that would be, a, I think, an ideal situation is to have four or five pastors who, as they retire from their ministry or, or whatever they've been doing, then they could just devote the rest of their lives to mentoring young men, training them up to be pastors. Anyway, this was Ron's observation. And the way it's, it works across in this chart is it's looking uh, horizontally through three basic sections in Romans, the introduction through 320, the ju- uh, deal, focusing on sin. The second column is the focus on justification by faith from 321 to 521. And then the third column is sanctification from 6-1 to 8-39. And you see that according to the uh, numerical uh, spread here, that the first, the top uh, row deals with the two words crema and uh, katakrema. And you have uh, ten uses of the word crema and three uses of the word katakrema in the first three chapters, focusing on guilt and condemnation. That's, uh, uh, that's, that's really strong. And then you get into um, um, 321 to 521, and you have no uses of katakrema, and I think you've got a couple of uses of, uh, uh, I mean, no uses of crema, and then katakrema, which refers back to judgment. And then it's only used one time, when you get into the focus on the spiritual life. So the focus in 6.1 to 8.39 isn't on condemnation at all. Uh, you see that in the second row, pistis, the verb for faith, is mentioned one time in 119 through 3.20. So he's not, and, and that's how he's talking about making the point that all are sinners. So faith isn't the issue. But faith is then mentioned some 24 times between the verb and the noun in 321 to 521. How are you justified? By faith. Well, that's where that word shows up all the time. And then when you get into sanctification, faith isn't mentioned quite so much. Life, zoe, zao for the verb, zoe for the noun, is mentioned only a total of, what, three times in the um, in the first section, none in the justification by faith section. See how many times we say, you want to have eternal life as a synonym for you want to be saved? Paul doesn't even use the word life in his explanation of justification. Not once. Interesting. Where does he use it? The result of justification. So I, I just think that's a great chart, chart for showing where the emphasis is, the proportionality there. Uh, in Romans, that when we get into Romans 6 through 8, we're talking about life. We're not talking about condemnation anymore We're in terms of the pronouncement of guilt. But there's an important distinction there between crino, uh, uh, and, and, um, the verb, crema, the noun, and katakrema, 
which is the uh, the other noun for condemnation. Now, the other thing that comes into this, and I know this, sometimes you think I'm probably getting lost in the weeds, but these kind of details are really important. Condemnation, if, if katakrima isn't talking about condemnation like krima is, and it's talking about the results, then that really does indicate that, that um, to be consistent with the use in Romans 5, 16 and 18, that katakrima is emphasizing not eternal punishment but the consequences of sin. And what Paul's been doing in Romans chapter 7 is that even though you're regenerate and you become a new creature in Christ, you're still living like you're spiritually dead. But for the person who is, this is the importance of that last phrase in verse 1, the person who's not walking according to the flesh but according to the Spirit, not just in Christ, but in Christ and not walking according to the flesh but according to the Spirit, that person has no condemnation, no punishment, no divine discipline in time. He's not talking. Get eternal out of your mind on that word. When we read condemnation, we think eternal punishment. But as I pointed out when we went through Romans 5.16 and 5.18, katakrima just focuses on the consequences of the action, not the pronouncement of guilt. It's not just it, it can be eternal, but it can also be temporal. So the context of this word is focusing on the consequences of sin in the believer's life. Paul, when he says, oh, wretched man that I am, is because he's, he's lit, trying to live the Christian life on his own without the Holy Spirit, and he con he's continually dominated by the tyranny of the sin nature, and he's, he's totally frustrated and incapable of living the Christian life. And then when he realizes the role of the Spirit... All of a sudden, it, it's like the, the lights have come on. The Holy Spirit is mentioned one time in Romans 6, and, and, uh, or excuse me, none in Romans 6, one time in Romans 7, and that was in Romans, uh, Romans 7 verse, verse 6, where I said, we're, we're, we're saved to walk in newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. And then just Romans 7, 7 to 25 is just a, a side trail. Romans 8, 1 picks up from where Romans 7, 6 ended. That's the mention of the Spirit. The word Spirit is used 21 times in Romans 8. It's not used at all in Romans 6, one time in Romans 7, and 21 times in Romans 8. Guess what the focal point is in Romans 8? It's the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Now, a couple of times the word Spirit is used there. It's not talking about the Holy Spirit, but the rest of the time it is. So, so he's not talking in Romans 8 about justification. He's talking about now how can the justified believer live without temporal condemnation because he's under the control of the sin nature, the te our temporal punishment. So a couple of passages just to sum up. John 3.18, a verse we are very familiar with because I quote it all the time. The one who believes in him is not condemned. That's krino. It's not katakrimo, but it's translated by the same English word, so don't get confused. That's a good translation for John 3.18. I'm just saying kata, uh, condemned is not a good translation for katakrima, which is what we find in Romans 5 and Romans 8. 
The one who believes in him is not condemned, but the one who believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's focusing on that pronouncement of guilt. Romans 5.16, though, goes on to say, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. Uh, That's the imputation of sin from Adam in context. For on the one hand, the judgment arose. See, that should be uh, that the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in what? Punishment. It's the consequences. See, you can even tell in the, the, the way it's translated, resulting in something. Uh, Katakrima indicates the, the results of the guilt, not the guilt itself. So resulting in punishment, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Romans 5.18 then says, so then it's through one transgression there resulted punishment. To all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Now, it may seem like it's splitting hairs because this really is a significant and detailed analysis of this word, but it's so important. And I wouldn't have caught this. George, George just nailed this two years ago at that sanctification conference in his paper on Romans 6. And he put a whole appendix at the end of his paper on Katakrima. And he did a good job pointing, pointing out the significance of this. And then as I went back and studied that even more, uh, I realized other things. He, he, um, uh, it's emphasizing, and I mean, George didn't come up with this. Very few of us are coming up with original ideas. We're just putting things together uh, from what other people come up with in their in-depth scholarship. So what this emphasizes then is that Romans 8, all of this is simply to say in Romans 8.1, that not only are we no longer under a judicial penalty from the Supreme Court of Heaven in terms of not being justified, uh, we've been set free from the judicial penalty related to future punishment and present spiritual death. So we're spiritually alive. We're not under condemnation. There's a freedom there. That is what Paul talked about in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that... Um, uh, though you, we were slaves to sin, now we have been set free from sin, Romans 6.18, and we're slaves of righteousness. So there's a shift that takes place. But what happens is if we live like a slave to the sin nature, we're, we go back to where we live like we're spiritually dead. We're not, but we live like we're spiritually dead. And so we experience the, con- the, the punishment in terms of divine discipline of living like you're spiritually, spiritually dead. The arena of application in Romans 8.1 is not to unbelievers how to get justified. The arena of application is to those who are already in Christ. It's, it's clear from that. There, there's therefore now no condemnation, no punishment to those who are in Christ, and that's further defined as those who are not walking according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So once again... This just sets us up to understand that the spiritual life in the New Testament is not just a matter of morality doing the right thing, which is, which is the legalistic idea going back to the Judaizers and those who thought, well, if I just do the law, then I'm okay, because there's a new dynamic, and that's the Holy Spirit. The issue now isn't are you doing the right thing, it's are you doing the right thing by the right power, i.e. the Holy Spirit. It's not just enough to do the right thing, to be moral, to be obedient, to witness, to read your Bible, but are you doing it in the power of the flesh, the sin nature according to the flesh, 
Are you doing it according to the Holy Spirit? It's the Holy Spirit that's given to us now so that we can walk in the uh, newness of the Spirit and not in the oldest of the letter. God's given us the ability to uh, obey Him, which the law did not give. The law only said this is the requirement. Now in the church age, we have the Holy Spirit who enables us. That's why it is so tragic today that people don't really study the New Testament like this, and they don't really get into emphasizing the significance of this great spiritual life. It is totally different in the church age. The, 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 the pattern for understanding the spiritual life in the church age is Jesus Christ's life on the earth, not the Old Testament believer. And yet for much of, Christi- of, of church age Christianity, the focus has been let's go back and do it like the Jews did. They, they developed a priesthood. They developed they, ter- sacrificial terminology. How many times have you heard people say, oh, I walked to the altar at the church, and they refer to in front of the pulpit. Well, nothing ever got sacrificed down there. We didn't shed any blood down there. They, when, I, when I first got out into the broader stream of Christianity and said, well, you need to walk to the altar and lay it all on the altar. And what altar? I haven't seen an altar, but that's the terminology we in, in church history, in the, in the church age, they, they thought the pattern was the Old Testament. It's not. The pattern's Jesus Christ. He's the one we follow. And he lived his life in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. So Paul sets this up, and all of what I've said today, dealing with all of these little details, simply to show you the support for why this is so important. Take the whole verse. Don't chop it up like, it, like some translations do. Take the whole verse because that sets the framework for understanding this chapter that now the issue is are you walking according to the flesh or are you walking according to the spirit? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to, to, to realize how crucial this issue is that, that throughout every day we need to be asking ourselves, are we living now in the according to the sin nature, according to the Holy Spirit. Who's in control? And constantly being mindful of the fact that if we fail, when we fail to confess our sins and you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we're thankful for your grace and such a tremendous uh, gift that we have, not only of our eternal salvation, but of God the Holy Spirit who indwells us and empowers us and fills us and that we need to learn to live our lives walking according to Uh, the Spirit, letting Him really work out His will in our life through Your Word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.